Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest sees a return of physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach David O'Sullivan. David was previously on the podcast back in May 2015 on episode 72. David is still currently the clinical director of Pro Sport Physiotherapy in Huddersfield, and he is also the founder and CEO of Pro Sport Academy, which is one of the top online sports rehabilitation mentorship courses available today. David has also previously served as the head physiotherapist of the Huddersfield Giants Rugby League Club, the Leeds Rhinos, and has also served as a head physio with Munster Rugby. On this episode, Dave and I discussed many topics, including what's new with David since we last spoke, pre-season screening, hamstring injuries, the biggest gaps not filled by universities with regards to physiotherapy degrees, the Pro Sport Academy Mentorship, pain, the brain and performance, and much more. This was another whopper episode, guys, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, David Sullivan, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come back on to the podcast. Um, I will link our previous episode in the show notes so people can go back and listen to that. But uh, just to kick us off here again, Dave, just give us a run through of the background and where you are currently. Yeah, cheers, Robbie. Thanks for having me back on again. Um, yeah, so I'm a chartered physiotherapist um, working in the UK at the moment, originally from Cork um, in Ireland. Um, I've just finished up um, in working full-time in professional sport last October. So um, kind of come out of that, focusing more on the private practice and, and developing the, the clinic now, uh, Pro Sport Physiotherapy in Huddersfield. And also, um, obviously, we're doing the Pro Sport Academy um, site as well, which is the kind of flagship product for that is, is the Pro Sport Academy 12-month therapist mentorship. Um, and so kind of where we're at at the moment really is we've had 80 students now go through the mentorship and I'm just really trying to really refine the, the mentorship now really to make sure that, you know, as it grows really, I suppose the big thing where my head is at at the moment is I have a responsibility to make sure what I'm delivering is and be accountable to somebody that what I'm delivering is actually good content. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment with the mentorship. Um, I'm, I'm bringing it to a couple of um, experts in inverted commas or people that I respect and going, right, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm delivering, what do you think I might be brutally honest with me? And I'm making them tear apart the mentorship for me um, to really um, be clear on what I'm saying to students and, and kind of so that they can understand it a little bit easier, really, so that I'm not telling them anything, um, I suppose, incorrect, really. I mean, I'll always give my interpretation and my opinion and research, um, but I just want to still have that, that kind of um, accountability to people. So rather than getting it... Um, you know, credited by by a few different organisations at the moment. I'm I'm not quite there. I, I want the the content to be very very clear. Um, so that's kind of why I've gone down this path at the moment with it. So yeah, so that that's where I'm at at the moment. I'm just focusing on helping uh, therapists kind of get to where they want to be. Whether it's they want to work in professional sports, show them you know what I've done and and you know the mistakes that I've made, or if it's you know you want to build your own private practice and you want to have the confidence to handle any case that that comes in the door you know just just show you how how kind of um we look at it really so that's kind of where we're at at the moment with it yeah i've had a good friend of mine tommy brennan went through and uh, he he had very good things to say about it like he was 
he was um, very impressed by the, the year mentorship. But I suppose a good question to ask here is why did you feel the need for this, Dave? Like, well, what, what, what was the sort of light bulb moment in your head where you're like, you know what, I think I have a lot to offer. I think this Pro Sport Academy mentorship is something that will, will could help a lot of people. Like, when, when was the moment where you're kind of like, you know, this, I, I think this could be something. And, and then why, why do you think it's something that you, you wanted to put together? Yeah, great question, really. Um, like I, I, I got to the top in in my area of sport very quickly, and I was very, very lucky to to have really good mentors. Um, so when I went in, I was just really, really lucky to have uh, Myrian uh, Jones, who's in Australia now. He's working with Melbourne uh, Storm Rugby League, and he he was my head physio at the time when I worked with Leeds Rhinos and. Kind of the stuff he taught me, like in the first three months I was with him, was just like it just saved me five years, like literally of making like mistakes. And he just goes, Right, look, the reality is you do this and this and this, you're going to get that. You know, you don't have to dress it up and and, and kind of put a ribbon on it, do this, this, and this. And, and he talked very bluntly to me, and I really appreciated that. And you know, then you know, a year or two down the line. You know the stuff that I was able to do, and then when I went and visited other clubs, and I was seeing some of the stuff that they were doing, I was just like, "Shit, yo, I'm really, really grateful that I'm this far on now because of my area. And so then, as I, you know, as I went into sport um, and I got my own head jobs, and then I started to move around clubs and stuff, I was just seeing the same kind of mistakes, really. That it's just there's just so much easier ways to do things, you know, and um, just keep it really simple do the basics extraordinary that's kind of my saying really and that's kind of what I what I keep the mentorship at and you know and then when I got to the, the Giants and I was heading up their um, sports medicine department you know I had a few new grads come in um, or like one or two years experience with other clubs and they were just like fucking hell this is a completely different way of doing things so I was like right you know let's get this information out there then and you know as I started to come out of, um, of sport then I was like well I've had my stint I'm, I'm 31 on Friday you know, there's a lot of other people there that want to get into sport now. And the thing is, Robbie, it's not just getting into sport. When you're in sport, you need to take your opportunity. You need, like, it's a brutal, brutal environment working in full-time sport. Like, the players and the athletes, especially rugby uh, union and league, you know, it's it's a high-performance environment, but it's also a high-pressure environment. So you, there's a lot of stuff that we don't get taught in university, such as dealing with coaches, dealing with the actual athlete's personality, making decisions on a day-to-day basis, managing training loads, managing plans. And like, like we just don't get trained um, in any of that at university. We barely get trained in sports injuries, if I'm being honest. You know, I got my massage module. They taught us how to do massage with talcum powder. So stuff stuff like that, you know. So as I came out of, of um, the university, like, well, luckily, I admire him, who, you know, like just gave me that, you know, um, quick kind of... Um, Mentorship and guidance. Yeah, and he said he saved me five, ten years, and you know, and to be fair, like I chat to Myron still quite a bit, and like we treat very differently now. But what he has done is he's given me a great platform to build on and build my own approach, and and that's what I do with the mentorship is I don't want anybody to replicate me. I want to show you what I do, and then I want you to take that and develop your own style because everybody has their own way of thinking. We all think differently. We all learn differently, and your kind of thought process and beliefs will be slightly different to mine. So you you can't really try take me and replicate me. You have to take my information, take the good bits and then build on that and, and make it your own really. And that's what I what I do in the mentorships. I don't want anyone to kind of go, right, 
I'm going to try be a clone today because if you do that, you you'll always only be a fraction of me. That's what I like to say. So you know, I want to take it and and, and go forward and, and be better than me. I suppose really, you know what I mean, and, and do what you want. So is it more of a case of you're you're trying to teach people these sort of overarching principles, and it's up to them, yeah. and it's up to them then to kind of go off and use whatever sort of methods within those principles they want, but. You, you, what you're saying is don't use exactly the methods I use, but think more about these principles that I'm trying to distill or teach down to you. Rather. Yeah, I mean, I, I treat method, I show methods in the mentorship, yeah, of course, but you don't yeah. have to use them. Yeah. Uh, but as you said, once you understand the principles of, of kind of how we look at the body, then it doesn't matter what courses you've been on. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you can use anything, but once you understand, and like one of my big things is if there is a peripheral tissue influence in pain or movement, um, is trying to justify and find, you know, that tissue. And then once we have, once we have that tissue, you know, your methods, your methods, you know, use, you know, what 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 you're comfortable with, really. So it's trying to get to that point. And then once we understand that, and we understand the directions and the forces, maybe that the tissues aren't quite comfortable loading in, then the rehab gets very easy. But we just need to under have that systematic process from the subjective right through to the objective. So by the time we even we even touch the patient with a, an intervention, we're pretty confident that we're on the right path then. And if we can get to that point, then the rehab's a piece of piss because so, you're not guessing then. Yeah, so it's, it's just about giving people tools to kind of get more laser focus in and get to that right input to get that right output a lot quicker. Yeah, yeah. I, w I don't, yeah, yeah. The tools will kind of come more under the methods, I suppose. It's more the, the understanding of looking at the person I, I would probably say if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. like, rather than focusing on the tissues, although definitely there probably will be with most sports injuries a peripheral um, issue that we need to kind of desensitize or or change. It's kind of looking at that person's stressors. Now, I, I had an article in uh, the Huddersfield Examiner at the weekend, um, kind of trying to do my good deed, kind of trying to tell people that pain is an output of the brain and it's not. Um, it's not, um, input, you know, uh, just at the side of the problem. And uh, the, the headline was, these physios think your pain is in your mind. I was just like, oh, my good God. And we just got, we got hammered for it, really. And, like, the whole article, because there's another woman in Huddersfield that looks at, like, stress. And I look at stressors to the body. So, like, physical stressors and emotional stressors and, like, lifestyle stressors as well. So, like, diet, what you're putting in your body, etc. But you know all about, you know more than me about that. But, um, so, like, physical stressors for me are, like, previous injuries because they're still stressing the system some point. Yeah. Unless you've, been, you've rehabbed that injury really, really well, which most people don't rehab injuries. You know, you have a bit of pain, crack on, it gets better. That's a bit but, like, that's a bit like sorry, you know, that's a bit like David Joyce's where he says like the CCD cameras are still on after the injury is gone, like yeah, so, like the body's still perceiving their threat there, like yeah, exactly, and like um like Kylie Tucker in Australia, like her research is just like unbelievable, and like when you actually see the interaction between the musculoskeletal system and pain, like you just see you no, know, like completely makes sense to me why these previous injuries are showing up as as um as issues further down the line and. Like one of the things I started to do last year was actually start recording when the players got bangs. So every time they got a bump or a dead leg or something like that, like something that they wouldn't necessarily come to you and say and whinge about, but just little niggles or, or bangs in the game that they didn't really think too much about consciously is actually record those and then start tracking them. And then like two, three weeks down the lane, no, I don't have enough data to have a study on it or anything, but we were finding stuff like, and, um, 
players were coming in with little niggles and you, you check your your um your kind of records and sure enough two three weeks before that they took in a bang somewhere there that's going to influence that kind of line of force <laughs> you know what i mean no, i'm not talking anatomy trends but you know just putting a force in a particular direction because if the skin the fascia the nerves can't shorten and lengthen or if they've got some form of protective tone straight away then the the um, intermuscular coordination is going to be affected you know and that's like there's a lot of literature out there on that at the moment you know but it's just and what, what i've done in mentorships just really try combine it all so looking at all the different areas and just try to bring it together as as one system really so um so that that'd be kind of your physical stressors and then your emotional stressors obviously like in sport we've got contract issues we've got team selection issues like and one of the big things is the is the dressing room environment for professional athletes like especially the younger kids you know it's it's a daunting um, area really for some of them like you, you you can pick it up and you see you know one or two players leave the club and then another player he completely comes out of a shell you know so there, there there there's all that stuff to consider there's there's sleep there's um and then there's actual um like partners like wives and girlfriends and then there's a lot of dynamics with that going on within the club which puts pressure so there's a lot of other like emotional stressors to, to athletes and, and to patients so like then the research of that shows well actually we can see the pelvic floor and the, the diaphragm tends to go a little bit hypertonic when we get into that fight or flight system so straight away then i can see the link for that with movement variability because if we lose movement through the diaphragm we're going to lose movement through the thoracic spine you're not probably going to be able to lower your glute well because the pelvic floor and diaphragm work together. And then straight away, then we can see the reactions in the musculoskeletal system as a result of an emotional stressor, potentially. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. you know, that, that's probably a big statement to make. But that's kind of how I reasoned it in my head is, is looking at those. So as I was saying to you before we came on, it's just trying to take a step back and not jump into conclusions with what you find, you know, especially in your objective assessment going, okay, he's got a weak glute, he's got this, he's got that. But okay, well, why has he got a weak glute? Why has his brain found this as an appropriate strategy at the moment? And there's, there's a nice phrase, um, I read it in the resilience book, because I'm, I'm doing a, a course next year for a strength and conditioning book. Um, the, so I'm reading all around, around resilience a little bit more, and she said um, something, and I've kind of modified it, Behind every movement dysfunction, in inverted commas, there's a positive intention from the subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. So our nervous system found this dysfunctional movement as useful for us at this moment in time. So that's what that was. That kind of hit home with me that we need to be careful trying to take away these dysfunctions unless we give something back to the system. So that's where we kind of have to step back and look at the true stressors to the system, and then when we address them then usually i see a lot of my objective tests start to clear up anyways so that's kind of how i'm looking at the body at the moment really is is kind of trying to integrate all the different areas of the research and trying to bring it into one system and like you're big into your heart rate variability aren't you yeah yeah and so like if, if you look at how the body responds we lose heart rate variability we lose movement variability and we lose diaphragm variability and that's been shown across the different sections you know when we're stressed so then it made sense to me to start looking at stressors so physical stressors previous injuries 
and then um, or structural abnormalities or, or whatever you want to look at in flat bracket and then emotional stressors and then I suppose you could look at your, your lifestyle stressors then as well in terms of your what you're putting into your body which again I'll be first to say I don't know a massive massive amount of that but I could see how you know if you are putting something into your body diet wise that that could stress the system which could then stress the movement of the organs which could then stress the diaphragm and then we go through that cycle again now again that you know I, I appreciate it's a big big um, claim to be saying that but um, you know in my mind it makes sense to me anyways that um, that, that could potentially have an effect yeah it's interesting there what you just said uh, you know from that book resilience you know you were saying that basically you know what we see as a dysfunction has been like this default by the body to, to, to just to just work around this dysfunction so it, and it becomes the body's then probably path of least resistance in terms of still allowing yeah. us to be functional and then do we really want to automatically take that away would have given something back to the body and it reminds me when I had when I did my new muscular therapy course I remember Leon Chado and he was talking about releasing trigger points and he's like he basically said the same thing. He's like, you need to really think about is it appropriate to release this trigger point in this specific area because that could be there to be adding. It could be there for a stabilization reason. Like the, the reason why that muscle's riddle trigger points and sort of tonic is because that joint that it's aligned to could be hypermobile and it's a defensive mechanism by the body. And you take that away and don't give it back some stability, you could actually make this person worse. Um, and he was using the example of like, you know, hypertonicity and hamstrings and sacroiliac instability. And he was like, you know, you get to people go, oh, there's all the fucking trigger points, I'll needle these and you'll feel nice and loose. And it's like, well, now you have an unstable SI. And he's just giving an example, but it's just kind of struck that up in me. And the second thing you brought up there was veritability. And just everybody's talking about veritability at the moment. You know, I had Franz Bosch in the podcast there lately. Um, and just obviously he's a huge proponent of variation and training in terms of motor development and learning and then Kevin Carr from White Boy Training Condition, he did a presentation at the NBSC Winter Seminar and it was all about just health through movement and, you know, how important movement is for health. And one of the things he was talking about was just like, um, the, you know, adding variation into movements, you know, and then the more the more variation you can put on top of a specific pattern, be it the squat pattern, the hinge pattern, or push-pull pattern with your body, or even a lunge or single leg pattern, the more variability you can build on top of that, the healthier then the system becomes. So just yeah. this variability just seems to be this huge theme that runs through. So it's really, really interesting stuff. Um, I, have, I have another question here to ask, but if you have anything you want to add on there while I was talking, you feel free. Yeah, and like ju just to go back to that, um, the, like, I banned, I don't know if I told you this in the last podcast, obviously, but it, like when I came into the Giants, I banned the players from getting their hamstrings and low backs massaged. I don't, I, don't know, um, I don't know if you did tell me that. If you did, I don't know, but that's very interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, I said it on a different podcast, I think. Um, and, like, that, because what athletes do is they come in and go, oh, I've got tight calves, hamstrings, low back, and you rub those. But usually what happens is, like, the, it's either the, well, the nose receptors, mechanoreceptors, whatever, are screaming. So a lot of those tissues are sensitized. So what, what I would look at the body is, okay, why are they... Um, getting a bit grumpy so very often then what what I was doing is like I made them all get their quads rubbed so none of them were allowed to get their, their hamstrings rubbed anymore they all got their quads and they absolutely hated it because they just they, did, they didn't like the lengthen um, on a local level so um, that then took a, took away a lot of the issues anyways um, and then once they started to get the tissue quality right and started to desensitize the quads lo and behold a lot of the back and the hamstring stuff was started to disappear and 
they actually now they all get their quads done without me on the stage. So the first year, you know, it was mandatory that they had to get their quads done because the tissue length, you know, just your prone knee flexion um, tests, like they were horrible. And again, you see the pressure on the back when you do those tests, you can reason why. Yeah, um, it yeah. had the influence of the tissue as protective tone there, but um, you know, and it just made such a big difference. And I, but I remember one story, um, and it was I think it was in the last season, and the oh no, it was two seasons ago. Sorry, because the massor um, at the time she um, she massaged the guy's low back before the semi final of the playoffs, and I could I could see her at the other end of the room doing it. I was like, what the fuck is she doing there? Um, and the guy he said his back was tight, and he went out to the team run. And his, um, she massaged his back, went out to the team run the day before the game, and his glute locked up on the same side then when he went out into the field. So the right glute just went into spasm. So the nervous, she's made him loosey-goosey, felt great, went out to the team run. So what does the nervous system do? In my opinion, goes, right, fuck you, I'm going to lock you up, I'm going to get some stability elsewhere. Yeah. So your glute just completely locked up, came off 10 minutes into the team run before the biggest game of the year. Luckily, I'd done a bit of work with him and, and I got him right and I had to treat him before the game. But that to me was just like, that's exactly why I do what I do. Because that shit, that shit, I reckon that happens all the time in sports. Yeah. Um, is, is that is, is this massage, it, it's a good tool, but it's a it's an absolute um, dangerous tool as well if used in, in the inappropriate manner. You know, And this is the problem where you get shown a technique and then everyone comes in with back pain and everyone gets that technique. You know, and like you know, I've, I've got into habits of doing that myself. You know, something works great for one patient, you're like, right, everyone's getting that today. And, you know, it's uh, that's what I'm trying to really get out of, um, get people's mindset out of in the mentorship is, is kind of treating the person first and foremost and figuring out, you know, as I said, what do we need to reassure the system, give it back, decrease whatever tone we need to, but we need to be careful uh, what tissues we're actually genuinely um, influencing with our hands on techniques. So, so that was a big eye opener for me as well at, at the end of last season when that when that happened. Yeah, I mean, and even like, not even just within say physical therapy or physiotherapy and rehabilitation fields, but even in like, uh, you know, uh, the fields of medicine, like you can have patients with the same pathologies or diseases, but have two completely different underlying causes to those pathologies. So that therefore would mean that the interventions are going to have to be different. So like again, two guys with low back pain doesn't mean that they that doesn't mean you can't apply the exact same intervention to both because it might be the appropriate one for some guy and then not the other so absolutely and again like as we touched on earlier on it really goes back to knowing the fundamental principles of rehabilitation and to be able to look at the body and make these logical sort of you know discuss have these logical discussions and, and make these logical thought processes of the body based off the principles of you know uh, motor learning and you know embryology i suppose and then motor learning and the way the body moves and locomotion and then pain science and whatnot and again these are things that you touch on in your in your mentorship so yeah uh, it just goes back again to you know principles and as you said then the methods are, are many but again do you have some sort of fundamental framework to to base all of your interventions off so that's a huge huge thing i uh, think just to touch on that i think the most important part is that what you everything you just said there is the subject of assessment because you have yeah. like that is the time where you get to know somebody. So like how I teach in the mentorship is the subject of assessment. Like what you see in the object of assessment should make sense to you. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't make sense to you, you've missed something in the subject of assessment or they haven't told you something. And the the big thing and like I've got a new clinical excellence um, ebook um, just out now actually. And this is one one of the things I touched on is like the first thing. What do we do when when someone comes in? 
we've got a big list of questions to ask them, whereas we don't actually get to know the person. And, and that's where you're going to find their stressors. You're going to understand why they're moving like this. You're going to get a much, much better understanding of why they're moving, you know, if you, whatever test you use, why their body may set themselves up like that once you understand the kind of get to know the person. It's very hard for us in the first 20 minutes. Some people may even do a subjective assessment of five minutes, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And how can you get to understand and get to know a person in five, 10 minutes? And, and that's something I probably... I've spent a lot more time talking to people now in my first sessions than I've ever done before, but actually I'm doing less treatment in my first sessions, but I'm getting better results as a result because if something doesn't make sense in the objective, then okay, why are they moving like that now? Like there's, there's no reason based on what she, he or she told me to move like this now. So, okay, have you ever done anything on this side? Like why, why is there a system avoiding loading these tissues? You know, something like that. So if, if that doesn't make sense to you, then they probably haven't told you something. Or, you know, they, they might have a, had a cut or a scar there or something like that, which may have caused, you know, subconsciously protecting that tissue where it doesn't want to stretch again. So there, there's always something there where you kind of have to, the subjective assessment for me is the most important thing, really. It's, it's the most overlooked, overrated. And it's something that I'm trying to get better and better at myself now is, is really, really get good at that. And, um, and kind of be crystal clear with the person. So by the time we get to the objective, I feel like I know him some little bit. And that's on a personal level as well. So like I'll always try now start the conversation with anything but physio. Because that person is absolutely, this is private practice now, um, this person is absolutely nervous as hell coming in to see you. They don't know you. Um, um, so like, so one of my mentors, he says, it's like, you know, um, going for a coffee with someone on a first date and asking them the most intimate details. Mm. You know what I mean? You, you start off, you, you, you get to know somebody, you ask a few easy questions, don't you? you? You start to relax a little bit. And then as your relationship develops, then they'll start to tell you your more, you know, deeper stuff where they'll confide in you. And that's where we need to try to get in five, ten minutes in a subjective assessment. So it's very, very difficult. And that's where, you know, this is where the mentorship, I'm trying to show the practicalities of, of reality now and not just, okay, we need to ask for red flags, we need to ask for yellow flags, we need to do this, this, and this. Okay, what does that mean? You know, but uh, the most important thing to me in the subject is getting to know the person. You know, that's the, the main aim for me, as well as the obvious, you have to rule out red flags. You know what I mean? That goes without saying. Um, but even if there is yellow flags, okay, we still have interventions there that we can help them with, you know? So we don't just go, oh, God, they've got yellow flags, this is going to be a nightmare. You know, does that make sense? Absolutely. And it's just while you were talking there, I brought up a, a thought there in my mind. So, you know, your subjective, getting the information from that actual individual and then going to your objective. And as you said there, they're already kind of coming in with a bit of anxiety or they're already nervous. So in a way, if, if we can't sort of put them at ease surely not surely but you would then think that that anxiety or nervousness could then impact like a truer finding then maybe in some of their objective markers you know because it could be more tense it could be more tight 100%. so 100%. yeah definitely so you're definitely right in saying that subjective is definitely underestimated in that terms of trying to get them to be at ease with you and you probably noticed yourself because you know I, I've, I've done a bit of treatment like I, i'm not a, a, a physio like yourself i've just did neumuscular therapy but um, it allowed me to have a license to put my hands on people and, and help in the rehab process. But, you know, you've, you've probably experienced this where you're maybe into your second or third session to someone and you just find out like these like these really yeah. important bits of information that they didn't tell you the first <laughs> yeah, day. Yeah, all the time. Because they're just more comfortable with you now at the second and yeah. third session, you know. So 
I mean, that makes uh, that makes such perfect sense. In, yeah. Like, the one thing you do as well, what's the first thing you do with your objective? Is you get something to walk. Yes, yeah. So they're already like, yeah, it's like when you say, just stand there and we look at your, your static posture and everyone's like, you know, it's never their true posture then. like. No, not at all. And they're like, this guy's looking at me from behind. I can't see him now. So like the gate, what you see in gate isn't, you know, a true representation and stuff like that. But um, it's uh, it's interesting. Like it's uh, it's very very interesting to to see how the body reacts. You know, to, to stress. You know what I mean? And and that's a stressor. Big time. So we this next question, you've kind of touched on a few things, but I'm gonna ask anyway. And then after that, I really I really want to get more into your sort of uh, pre-screening because I know you did a webinar on that before. And, I know it's a, it's a big area with you in terms of it's, a, it's an area like to talk about like a, how to develop your screening processes and, and all that. But just before we get to that, in terms of like physiotherapists coming out of college, and you kind of touched earlier on, the question I just want to put forward to you is, in your mind, like what is the biggest deficits they have coming out of college? You kind of touched on it there and that they're not prepared, like say for a pro sport environment and stuff like yeah. that. You even said there in your own course, you were showing how to massage with like talcum powder or whatever it was or but like, yeah. it, it, what what are some of the other biggest deficits? You know, so if, if physio comes out, like, what what do you think is some of the things that they just like they just uh, didn't get in college that they really do need to know before they get into the uh, profession? Again, like to be honest, it's, it just goes back to dealing with people, talking to people, yeah, and yeah. I like the best therapists that I see that do well in the sporting setting is therapists that have always played sports. So they've been involved in team sports, so they're used to that team environment. They're comfortable being around people and interacting with people and, and stuff like that. Now, this is more a sporting environment. This this may not apply to their private practice. Um, and and just being, yeah, just like getting comfortable. Like, can you, um, you're right, you've got 10 athletes in front of you, you've got 20 athletes in front of you for a pre-op session. How are you going to dictate this 10-minute session how are you going to organize it, right? You've got a 10 meter squared space. How are you going to organize this for this pre-op session to run well? Like my assistant, Ali, who's head physio now, and like he'll laugh at this. And I know it's Dara, actually, the, the assistant before him. And like we do our movement prep, we like a 20, 30 meter space with the Giants. And you could see, I could see it before it was about to happen, that how he's organized the pre-op session to run just was going to cause chaos. Hmm. And I, I'd hold back and I'd say, right, I want to see this now here. Can he see this happen before it happens? And I'd leave him. I'd leave him burn a little bit so he'd learn his lesson. And <laughs> we'd get all flustered, Eric, bless him. And, and then, you know, we, we'd have to start it again or we'd have to, like, even the exercise you take. Because if you're up and down an alleyway, if you put one exercise that's too quick, then you're going to have a backlog. So if an exercise, take, like if you're doing a Spider-Man twist with a reach, versus some form of three-dimensional three hamstring stretch. One exercise takes a little bit longer, so one line going up, the mm -hmm. thing is going to be slower versus the other. So then at the end, you're just going to have a backlog of players. So it's all this, these little things that you don't get taught at university. You just have to figure out on the fly. And it, like, it, it all, it's almost common sense, but it's it's just the ability to organize these things and, and interact with players and also coach them and have a bit of banter with them and go, hey, get back down there or do that properly and stuff like that so that stuff to me like give me anybody any day that's just got a decent personality and i'll take them on and i'll hire them and i'll i'll show my way versus somebody who's the smartest clinically you know um intellectually but you know they melt once they're in front of 10 20 athletes yeah. you know so that's that's kind of the way i look at it. that's no disrespect to, to those it's just it's a lot easier to 
for someone then to be successful and get results if you have that kind of awareness and unfortunately if you don't have that yet that's okay but you have to put yourself in those positions where you have to get there you know and there's only one way to get comfortable with that and that's actually doing it it's horrible and I'd go through and I hated it at the time even though I used to play sport but then you just you desensitize but like everything else you just you get you get more comfortable yeah definitely it's like it's similar from like you know conversations with Mike Boyle like he always talks about this you, you know he much prefer to take on someone who is a, a decent human being good personality and has got common sense in terms of logistics and can stand up front of a group rather than somebody who got a, dis, a distinction in their sports science or their masters and yeah couldn't coach away with a paper bag like so but uh, de- definitely a, a big area now that that a lot of people are talking about or, or they're kind of more sort of appreciating about you've mentioned this a few times and I, uh, I teach at a personal training college, and I always say this to the students as well, is that like things like programming and periodization and nutritional strategies, like while, don't get me wrong, you know, you still need to know, obviously, the science behind that. But I say this like, you know, with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, but they are the easy parts. Like they're, they're the easiest things to get right. It's getting people to actually buy in and do these things. So where I'm getting with this question is, understanding human psychology and human behavior that that seems to be a big area everyone's going to now so another kind of carrying on from this question of the of what deficits people have coming out of college you yourself as a physio over the last few years and as a rehabilitation specialist you you definitely because you touched it it definitely seems that you're starting to look outside of rehabilitation look at these areas of human behavior uh you know changing habitual patterns of, of of behavior and like so maybe just this question I'm going to ask is like, what areas outside of rehabilitation are you currently looking at and what areas do you think are really, really important to look at for rehabilitation professionals and strength conditioning coaches that are getting neglected? So again, for me, like, you know, when you're a newbie in the field in terms of like personal trainers that I teach college, all they want to know is, or all they think they need to know is, you know, I need, I need to know how to write a program and I need to know how to teach exercise and I need to know a little bit about nutrition. That's it. And it's like, I'm trying to say that that's actually the easy part, guys. The hard part is having empathy and compassion and unconditional love and acceptance for yourself, first of all, and then for the clients that you're going to train or if you're a rehabilitation person, rehab. So I'm always like, it's it's really going to come down to the study of human behavior and psychology. So like, would you, would you say that's one area you've looked into and if there's other areas too that you think is crucial, maybe just touch on to that as well. Yeah, um... I think, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good question. It's, it's a trick. I'm trying to think what I'm reading at the moment. Um, yeah, I think the, certainly because that's, that's the area that I'm, like, I'm happy with my objective treatment and rehab at the moment. And the yeah. subjective is, is the part that, that, as you said, I'm trying to get better and better at. So I'm kind of, I'm trying to understand pain science a lot more in terms of simplifying it for patients. I'm trying to get a lot better at explaining stuff to patients uh, to make it more meaningful to them. So I think the human behavior is a big one that I'm, I'm doing a lot of at the moment. Um, I'm spending a lot of time at it and, and just observing people and trying to interact with them a lot better. Um, the, what else? I was going to say something there that, that while you're talking, it triggered it. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the, the authority is very, very important. And I think you finding ways to have authority in the relationships and part. Now, I don't mean authority as in you're a dictator, but I mean authority as in when you speak, that person listens to you. The company, um, yeah, and just th- and I think there's a few components to that. I think number one, you have to have passion in what you're doing, and I think if you have passion in what you're doing, I think they'll listen. 
And then the other thing is they have to have the confidence and the belief that you're the person to help them. But again, I think a lot of that comes like, so my path to success for my mentorship that I've kind of mapped out for the, the students, I find that a lot of the confidence part comes at the end once they know they have got the objective and treatment. So they've got the, um, the skill set to actually help the person. Because I think if you're like, shit, I don't know if I can help this person. And you're, you're explaining stuff to them, you almost subconsciously do it half-heartedly. Yeah, Whereas if yeah. you go, right, I can, I can help this person. I'm right, I'm on it. I'm, you know, they can see your passion. So I think it all interlinks, if that makes sense. But um, that I think that's one of the big things. And I, I was speaking to this because we, we had a guy over at the weekend and a few mentorship students over, and I was speaking to them about it, is you have to keep your authority in the relationship. You know, and again, like the authority, it sounds a little bit like bad, but what I mean by that is you're the person dictating the treatment plan. You're the person that's dictating when they come to see you, what they're doing, as opposed to, okay, how are you today? Yeah, I was all right, but then I thought a 10K run. Okay, but I told you not to do that. So there's an issue there. If that, if your patient's gone and done a 10K run and you've told them not to, there's an issue. You know, and and it's probably because you don't have the authority in the relationship or not enough authority. Mm. And a lot of like my my physios at the moment, like Alex or Shane, like if they're struggling with a patient, then then I'll see them. And very often, I've got the authority. Not my job's a lot easier because they're like they'll almost frame the person like, oh, they will help you. He's X, Y, and Z. He's worked with X, Y, and Z. So they're coming in already. You know, go and believe in that I can help them. But when I say something to them, I'll say it in certain in a certain way. I'll be very authoritative and I'll be very um, straight down the line when I'm going. Okay, you're not running because of X, Y, and Z. And I'll make them understand why they can't do a 10k yet. And again, that goes back to the pain science. It goes back to that graded exposure principles, all that stuff. But again, if if your patient is doing that then for me, that's your problem. That's not your patient's problem. It's too easy for us to say the patient won't listen to me. He just goes out and does this, this, and this. This is why he's in pain again. Okay, but why? So that's what, what I'm trying to get through the mentorship again is it's our problem, not theirs. Mm-hmm. And we haven't the authority in that relationship yet to, to get the results. And that's like in sport, it's absolutely massive. If you don't have the authority of your players, you're fucked basically because they'll walk all over you. They'll tell shit to other players, viruses. They're like viruses and they'll spread. And then God knows what they're telling the coach. Whereas in that relationship with players, what I say goes basically. Now you have to, you treat certain players a little bit differently and based on where they are in the squad. And there's no point saying you don't because everybody does. And if they, if they say they don't, they're bullshitting. They're lying, because yeah, if, a, if a Paul O'Connell came to me, I'd probably react a little bit differently than if one of the, the junior players came to me and said the same thing. You know what I mean? That's just the way we're, we're designed. So for me to say, I'd say the exact same thing or I wouldn't give Paul a little bit for French, for French, uh, for French, I can't even say that word, a bit more preferential, is it? That's the word, <laughs> a treatment. Um, then the, the junior player, you know, I, I think I'll be lying to you there. So I think you just, how you spin it to players and the personality that you're dealing with just changes a little bit. But what, what you're trying to get to the end point is the exact same. You just do it slightly different with senior players. Because you, you make them think that it's their idea. So you say it in some, a certain way that they may almost feel like they're making the decision, but they're not really. You're, you're getting them to do exactly what you wanted. And that's the kind of art of the kind of working in pro sport, I think, that you have to have in order to be successful and, and keep the authority to the players. Because yeah. if, you, if you start letting them do what you want, you're pissing against the wind. They're not going to probably get better. And then they'll be the first one to bad you then on the back of it. You know, So it's a, it's a vicious cycle. 
And just uh, finishing up on that point then of building sort of this, you know, authority. Um, like, what strategies have you used in in the sport teams you've worked with to, to build that sort of authority? And I suppose, and also get that balance right now. You did just say there, of course, you're going to treat certain individuals different. And that, again, makes sense because everybody's different. So you can't be the same person. Everyone, and you're not. Even if you said I'm the same, whatever, you're not. Like, it's, it's just, that's, that's also a... A lie, whether you consciously mean it as a lie or it's just subconsciously it's a lie, like as in consciously you think you're, you're no, I'm, I treat everyone the same, so if you don't, like, you know I mean, because no two patients are the same, so that therefore you cannot be treating them identically the same in terms of your body language, the way you discuss with them, and all that. But in terms of setting up that sort of environment of this, you know, you have that authority as the, the physio and getting that balance right where it's not like it's, it's purely my way or the highway, or that's you know, basically fuck off. Where it's listen, I'm still here to facilitate you, but you have to you have to do what I tell you. Like, what sort of strategies have you have you put in place? And was there ever any difficult situations with certain teams you were in? And, and if so, what were the strategies in those cases? Yeah, um, like for that, it, it goes back to me for confidence. So, like, I genuinely believe, and it's not being big headed or cocky, but I've got absolute confidence in my system. Mm-hmm. So, no matter what player comes to see me, like. I, I went down to London to work with a, a rugby player and um, he complicated case and I genuinely, as I was travelling down his shoulder, I had a little bit of information but I did not know what I was going to do with that player until I saw him and that gives me confidence that it's not a case of, okay, his shoulder, I'm going to give him X, Y and Z exercise. These work great for me. It's having the confidence to know that, okay, I've got my system in place, I'm going to see this player, I'm going to, I don't know his history yet so I'm not even thinking of what I'm going to give him I listen to him and then I formulate my plan. And to have that system in place gives me confidence. So I know then that it should make sense that we can get a player right. So it's like me having confidence in my own system then allows me to be authoritative because yeah. I can walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I suppose, so, that, I suppose that only comes then with experience and time as well. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's why I said the confidence part comes at the end of the path to success after the 12 months in the mentorship because... You've gone through that point. Yeah. Yeah. You have the belief that you can actually help people, so it's a lot easier then for the confidence to come. Because the the worst thing in the world is having that cocky confidence, and then you're shit at what you do. Yeah. So having it the wrong way around. So I'd always rather it develop later in the mentorship than at the start. Because if and that's why I, I chat to people before they come on the mentorship because I don't want anyone like that on the mentorship. Because it's just there. Those kind of clinicians aren't aren't. They do more damage than they do good for people. To, to the um, profession too, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So, so that, that's the big thing for me is having confidence in your own system, which, you know, because if I'm saying something to you, Robbie, and I am like genuinely mean it, and, like, and I believe I can help the majority of people with my approach because I look at the person rather than decide of the injury. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's some people that, you know, they're – no, there's other issues there that we need to consider. So I wouldn't say that I can help everybody, absolutely. I'm just silly to say. But I'd be very confident in my approach to help a lot of athletes. So when I'm speaking to somebody, I've got the belief that I can help them. So it probably comes back to belief then again. So they can see that I've got that passion, which then when they're listening to you go, right, this guy knows what he's on about, I believe in him, then you're the authority figure in that. You know what I mean? So it goes back to that listening. That was like my tip number one in the seven steps to clinical excellence is being able to listen to the person. And they need to be able to listen to you and you need to be able to listen to them rather than, you know, these patients that come in and you're speaking to them, you're explaining pain science, etc. And they're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like my mother is the worst. Like if you ever try to treat your mother, like you're talking to her and she's like, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just know she hasn't listened to a word you said. And it's so frustrating treating family. Like, that's why I don't do it anymore unless they have to. Well, it's the same kind of person. And if, if you have that kind of patient, you're in trouble. You can spot them pretty quickly, really, you know. Mm, yeah. um, and, and for them, you know, I'd, I'd be pretty honest with them then as well. i say, look, I don't think you're buying into this. You know, I don't want you to waste your money here. You know, if, if you want to do it, you can do it. But I don't want to waste my time and your time doing it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, if they, if they wiped your arse, they generally won't listen to you, you know. What's that, sorry? In terms of your parents, if if they if someone's wiped your arse that's at some stage, like like they'll, they'll, they'll probably will never listen to you, you know? Yeah, but, yeah uh, that's You mentioned that you mentioned pain science there. Um, that's another huge area. And and Tommy Brent, who I mentioned earlier on, who, who was uh, who who was one of your graduates, he uh, he was involved with the double minor hurlers this year, and I did their physical preparation. He did their physio, and, and Tommy's, oh, Tommy's fantastic. It was great. It was actually great for us. Yeah. Yeah, we, 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 would, we would meet up at each training session and we would just be just geeking out, talking about everything to do with like physical preparation and pain science and whatnot. And uh, so it, it was great. Like it was kind of a double win situation. You know, it was like every night you were forced to go on training because you got to, we got to meet up. But pain science is an area that he's very fascinated too. And just, just touching back there on, uh, you know, the, 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 the clinician and patient relationship, a lot, a lot, some of the stuff Tommy was saying is that the idea of this idea with empowerment that, you know, that he was only saying that's what he was only coming across is that sometimes it isn't even so much the intervention or the objective input you're putting in. It's that the subjective uh, perception of the individual is that like this is working because you've empowered them to kind of really look after their own dysfunction or their own pain. And that's kind of leading to good clinical results. And, so like definitely there's this other again it comes back to like this whole psychology and mind thing and buying from the from the individual so i have a two kind of prong question here one is pain science uh what does that mean to you have you looked into it what have you found and then second part of that is in terms of helping people with their pain do you think there is something to that sometimes it's nearly not so much the actual intervention in terms of the method used but it's about getting them to perceive that they're actually in charge of their pain by getting them more involved in the rehab process so they're kind of two two yeah questions yeah yeah i, I can see where you're coming from with with the empowerment side like for me and that, that's not me that was tommy so yeah sorry yeah tommy yeah Cowell. um no and there's definitely a facet of, like the, the big thing for me with pain science is um like it goes back to the fair the unknown so again the subconscious mind you know, perceiving the threats, yeah. sending that information to the conscious brain. But it's more the person not knowing what's wrong or the fear that they have about their pain. So the fact like what pain science, like pain science is an intervention, um, just like the manual treatment and the non-manual techniques. And like the pain science is one of my interventions in the mentorship. Mm-hmm. But what that does is it almost just sorts the fear, the unknown, so you know it's like um what, what what kind of example could i use here like what once you like my house got burgled on monday night and um last monday night so my system was like completely desensitized like i didn't fucking sleep on monday night um any little noise i was up like my system was in fight or flight basically yeah. and that's getting better but we we got a little bit of information um during the week but where like my fucking ipad showed up in blackpool so if anyone finds my notepad and blackboard actually like my whole course manual planning for the next years and that <laughs> so you can have it but um like the fact that i knew then 
that the person wasn't local was almost like just a massive relief to me. Because I, where I found my car was up the road. So I thought like, is this person that broke my house 100, 500 metres up the road? And once I kind of got to go, okay, there's actually, I suppose, I don't know if you call it closure or whatever, but you can kind of, you kind of get an idea now of what's going on. It's just like, uh, just a relaxation. And like a lot of my patients, when you kind of explain their pain in relation to their story, they kind of, they, like the big thing for me with the pain science is them to come to their own conclusion, not for me to tell them. Yeah. So you kind of, you, you say stuff to them and they kind of almost give you the answer. So does this mean it's, yeah, bang. like that to me is much more valuable than me telling you. Because if I tell you something, it's like, and we've just met, you're like, who's this clown? Like he's, and he's saying it's in my head. No, I'm not saying it's in your head at all. So it's like the, the pain science is almost the, the conscious mind coming to the realization of something that the subconscious is telling it and kind of making sense of it. So it's almost taking care of the fear of the unknown. That's the way I kind of look at it. That, that helps relax you. And then if the, the fear of the unknown is a little bit relaxed, then the diaphragm and pelvic floor is going to relax a little bit, hopefully, because that's presumably holding tension for the fear of the unknown. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So then you, you can kind of start to link it to the physical body and then you can see how the pain science is actually going to help the physical body. So that's kind of the way I look at it, is is kind of um, helping the fear of the unknown, kind of giving you a little bit of closure, but also um, just like putting to rest kind of some worries and concerns you have, you know what I mean? And, and so that you can actually go, okay, this kind of changes things a little bit for me now. So you're, and a lot of the pain science is it's helping you um, with the reactions to pain because the pain, the actual initial pain isn't the problem. It's how our body reacts to that pain, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like the increased breathing rate, the loss of movement variability, the, um, your sleep might get affected if you're more persistent pain case. It's all those vicious cycles that come, you know, that's the problem. The fear, the unknown, the kind of catastrophizing, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, that's the problem. They're not necessarily the initial injury. So, oh God, it's my disc. You know, it's, it's the worry, the anxiety that goes through that. Then we get the diaphragm, the pelvic floor reacting, and then we can start to see other stuff happening. So the if we cut it down, we can kind of take care of all that stuff. Then we can kind of stop that kind of vicious cycle happening. So if they do feel pain again, they're not reacting as strongly and we're not getting all those reactions throughout the body as a result then. So that's where I see the power in the pain science, really, on a physical level. So I can actually see the reactions in the physical body that, that we're doing through the pain science, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. One, one thing I kind of popped in my head there, though, interested to get your take on this too, is I wonder, though, is sometimes that a double-edged sword? And I know you're saying that when someone kind of gets closure, like, so you'd often hear times, you know, there's people... And they just let's just say it's more from a physical health aspect, not so much like we'll say like uh, now of course physical health aspect we would bring in things like joint pain and all that. So yeah, that that could be looked into there. But say someone maybe with more of a pathological illness where they're going to like conventional doctors and they're getting tests on you. You often hear this like when they go from doctor to doctor and they're like, "Are yeah, you grand?" It must be just in your head. And then they might meet someone who's a little more enlightened or just a doctor who's just better at what he does or she does. And they go, you have this. And then the person's kind of like, it's not in my head. I knew I wasn't crazy. And it's just like they finally got that diagnosis or that closure. Now, the the, the double-edged sword I'm going to say here is then that swings two ways. One, 
it, it literally could be the, the diagnosis could be correct and then the person could have closure and then they might be able to reverse it and then live a happily healthy life or whatever or not, whatever, not health, happily healthy but their life can just you know prospire from that moment onwards or improve greatly but then the other way it could also go is people then hang on to it as a crutch You're like i knew there was something wrong yeah, I, yeah. you know i knew i had diabetes or i knew i had fibromyalgia or in your case i knew me back and the reason why i bring that up is because like you know paul check has this famous saying he's like when you find your purpose in life you don't need a crisis anymore so what he means by that is you get these people running around with no idea who they are at a fundamental spiritual level, no idea what their purpose is in life. Like, of course, that's a lot easier said than done. Us, we're all trying to find our true happiness on earth. But you just get a lot of these people who are just completely lost. So what they do is they invent like, like crisis in their head. And a crisis could be like they bitch about everyone or they're gossip people or other people. It's they hang on to like an identity like I, 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 I have back pain or I'm always fatigued or this or that. So like the, the dysfunction or the pain that someone has or the diagnosis, quote unquote, that they got becomes their identity. It's like, oh, Joe always has fucking bad back or always has a sore knee or his shoulders always at him or Joe has, has bad headaches. So he has to take medication for it. And then it kind of that, that whole idea of closure really went the other way. It nearly gave them this sort of kind of like this bias to say, oh, I am I'm damaged. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's just an interesting. I just thought again to my head, like whereas one person that could be like, I knew there was something not right and I want to fucking fix it. And they fix it, change their life, boom, brand new, great. They went the path we'd like to go. But other people's like, I knew there was something wrong. I knew I'm a, a broken person. Woe is the world. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. one person's kind of like the glass half full. They're like, yes, I know there's something I can fix. Now let's get after it and get done. Where the, yeah. other, where the other person's glass is empty. I knew I'm the victim to life here. And oh, yeah. it's just me, you know, bad back ones in my family and this sort of stuff. So, Again, it goes plus it's going back to you and behavior and like listen everyone is the way they are for a reason everyone's a victim of their culture and, and environment and their society their upbringing and, and everything else that can interact with our genetic expression nutrition and sleep and circadian rhythms and environment toxins and we can go on and exercise whatever but it's just interesting you brought that up you know that double-edged sword and just to make people sort of aware of that interesting to get your take maybe on it as well yeah so like with someone like that and you, you do get people like that like straight away i would like address the elephant in the room with them yeah and I would say, like, to that patient, and I've got my next um, program is called Intention-Based Exercise Rehabilitation Masterclass. So that's going to be my next, like, small course. And I touch on, like, actually do a lot of this in it. But um, I'll say, well, what do you actually want? So it's not about what you don't want now. We need to be crystal clear and focused on what you want because we need to finish at the end there because until they know what they want, the reticular activating system is focusing on what they don't want. So yeah. they're selectively yeah. tuning into this. So I would go about, and science-wise, explaining about the reticular activating system. I call that the GPS of the body, the subconscious mind. So I go, right, there's no point just saying you don't want to be in pain. So that's like me. I, I used this in an analogy the other day. That's like me being in London, trying to get back to Huddersfield and saying, okay, I want to be anywhere but London. So that's not going to get me to Huddersfield, probably. Yeah. So it's not no use for me saying, setting my GPS to West Yorkshire. So, okay, I want to live life... Um, happy okay that's like me saying west yorkshire so it's going to get me a little bit of the weather okay now i need to get to huddersfield okay i want to live my life happy in x y and z job whatever you know you can get deeper into it so yeah, what yeah, no, is my six digit postcode so i want to be crystal clear with the patient on where they want to get to because it's only when i know that that i can design my proper rehab program and that's that's the, then exactly 
where we're working towards. So that patient knows where they need to get to, as opposed to, you know, because there's a confused mind never goes forward, basically. So if they're confused, then they're not going to progress. So that, like, that's how I'd approach that patient, basically, is I'd get crystal clear on where they want to get to. And then from there, then we start their plan. So that would all happen in the first session in the subjective assessment for me. That's the quote of the day. A confused mind never goes forward. It's true though, isn't it? When you when you're confused, you stop. You know, you you, you stutter or something. So, and you know what? You find that often with people who want perfection, because there's another saying: don't let perfection get in the way of progress. So you get people who overanalyze your you know paralysis by analysis type job. But no, that that's very interesting. And and you know, it's so funny you brought up the word intention there, because again, going back to Bosch, it's just funny when you're seeing these similar thought processes that seem to be in different realms, but kind of like they're like this underlying current behind everything like his whole thing like with exercise like if an exercise doesn't have an exact intention so your idea is like well, I'm in London and I want to go to Huddersfield that's like I want to go that's my intention whether you're not going like what isn't my intention you're clearly stating like what do I want and he's the same in terms of transfer of exercises he's like most exercises have no clear intention so yeah. folk, he shows like someone doing a bicep curl and he's like He's like, there's no clear intention there. But he's like, when you're doing like, you know, his, his high hand clean, single leg, ha- you know, his high, or his single leg, high hand clean to a box. He's like, there's a clear intention there of the triple extension, the the reflex uh, action of, you know, flexion in one leg, driving extension in the other. Like, there's a clear action or uh, call to action or clear intention of the exercise. Like, so it's just, it's interesting you bring that up too. It's, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. I love when that kind of happens when you see like, oh, Dave said this thing, Franz watches this, and it's just, oh, yeah. You know. But uh, something uh, we'll, we'll finish up here on Dave, so just uh, um, one or two other little things. Very, very interesting to get your thoughts on screening assessments, pre-season screening assessments. I know you did a webinar on that before. I read a really good chapter in David. I only interviewed David Joyce last Monday week. And Dave Joyce, in his uh, latest book with uh, Daniel Owen and the Sports Injury Prevention Rehabilitation, He's two chapters in that. One is on pain science, which we touched on, and we spoke a bit about that. He did that with David Butler. A lot of stuff you've actually just mentioned is covered in that. And then, but the other chapter was about, you know, developing screens, and he kind of goes about it like in a seven-step process. But what he does first off, he does he does this what's called generic warning indicators, and then he goes into specific warning indicators, and he's got the sort of system. And and from speaking to you previously before, and seeing some of your stuff, and also talking to Tommy, like. He kind of, I've heard some similar stuff to yourself, like where you're a lot more sort of critical minded too about screens and preseason screening rather than saying, where well, here's this one generic model that ever fits into. You yeah. may have a generic pro, a generic model in it as part of the puzzle, but then you might uh, break it out a little more specific depending on the individual, their history, the sport, yeah. yada, yada. So maybe you just want to get into that. It doesn't even have to be for sport, like even even like when, when the typical person's coming into a private clinic, because there is going to be people listening to this who deal with private clients as well. So, just yep. when it comes to things like screening assessments, be it preseason sport or for sport, even for just the general population, like what comes into your mind? Like what are your big rocks or philosophies or more principles, more so if you want to put it that way? Yeah. Um, so, um, where to start with it? The my my kind of whole philosophy again, like if you want to talk about like learning from my mistakes and stuff, like when I was with the Rhinos, we forty five minute screen, forty five minutes each player per screen. And by the end of the day, you're, you've got loads and loads of data, your head's wrecked, and you, it goes into the cupboard, and you, you don't, don't even do act anyway, in it. Yeah. So, like, fast forward eight years, Giants, my last screen, I screened 30 players in two hours, 
um, plus maybe an hour of, of another bit of analysis and then maybe one other hour to actually put the program together. So when I pre-season screen, I'm gaining information from my movement prep sessions. So I'm not necessarily looking to intervene per, with every single player because that's not realistic. And unless you are in a premiership club and you've got 10 physios, fair enough, then we can talk. But for the majority of clinicians, you need to understand as a whole where the squad are at, where we need to take them in terms of the movement prep. So my, my pre-season screen is ultimately to give me information about what my movement prep is going to be. Now, what I use in my screen is very much dictated by what the players are going to go through for the next six weeks. And this is what I covered in the in the webinar was there's no point in me looking at the needs analysis of the sport for pre-season because the players do everything but their sport pre-season. They climb on each other's backs, they deadlift ridiculous amounts, they do flyer um, tire flips, they, they run ridiculous amounts um, aerobically that they may not do um, in season. So the demands that's going to be placed upon their body is going to be completely different. So my pre-season screening is ultimately to get an idea of are they okay to, to go into these kind of movements that they're going to go in. Then on the back of that then, at the end of the six weeks when we re-screen them, then my screen would be looking more at, at in-season. So the, the kind of that's why it's very important for me that I can have a screen that I can do in two hours because realistically you need about six of these a year if you want to do it properly, in my opinion. Mm. If you're just doing it once a year, you're, you're, you know, you're going to get a little bit. But the minute they go under stress first day of pre-season, their movement strategies have changed. Like if you, and it goes back to the emotional drivers of stress. You see a player, you'll always get a player that's absolutely shitting himself about pre-season. They, they'll come into our physio room, what do we have to say? Do we have conditioning? Do we have contact today? And they're, they're stressing about it. So, like, again, we've already spoke about what, what impact that's going to have on movement. And then, like, the environment during which your screen is going to change things. So if you've got a lot of students screening you and there's loads of people looking at you, how you do your single leg squat while another player is talking to you or trying to get your attention is going to be different to how you subconsciously move. And I've got a great uh, video on my webinar, actually, of uh, Abe and Ruby, my two-year-old and six-year-old squatting. And I asked them to squat, and they copy me. So if you're demonstrating how to do the movement, again, that intention is, okay, I need to do what Robbie's doing. Whereas actually, subconsciously, I like uh, Ruby's squat, I'll try to get it up for you. Um, I'll put it on a blog, actually, if you need to link it. Mm. Is uh, Ruby's squat's horrible, and it, like, it's like my squat. But then when she's playing later on, she's like deep squatting absolutely perfectly. So, like, what you're seeing as your screen, you need to be very, very careful of. So we just need to, to be careful of, there's, there's just too many factors, in my opinion, to, um, to, to kind of have this definite, right, this is what I do and this is why it's happening. So what, how I look at it is my, my exercises, they have to be very quick and a student should be able to deliver the exercise. And then that's going to help my reliability and validity anyway to a point. If I can show somebody that doesn't really have much experience to do the test, and they can repeat the test, then then I'm a little bit happier anyway. So my tests will be ones ideally that I can use in season as well, or sorry, pre-season in terms of if a player gets injured. So like your knee to the wall, if a player has a calf injury or an ankle injury, we've got their pre-season before they've started what they were like before they started training. So we've got some form of baseline to get back to. Mm -hmm. So I can get five or six movements that I can use with most injuries that's going to be a great start for my pre-season screening. Then I look at what they're going to be doing in the gym. If I can get one or two movements, like a bodyweight squat or, or some form of deadlift start position, 
have a look at that because I know they're going to be doing a lot of that. Are they, are they okay to actually do that on the load? Can they just get into the start position? That's going to give me a lot of valuable information. Or do we need to put them on blocks to start with? You know, so stuff like that that should give me real easy information that's going to make a big, big difference in the grand scheme of things. Because if that player can't get into good deadlift start position, he's pulling from the floor, then, you know, the chances of him getting injured are probably higher. I can't say that for certain, but it makes sense in my mind. Because no, susceptibly, he's going to flare things up a lot easier. Um, and then I would look at um, some form of contact screen. So do they have, like, range of motion? Brilliant for me. Yeah, because if you, like, even a passive range of motion test, if you can't um, display a decent end range feel, then there's some form of protective tone there. You know, so then that goes back to the subjective. Why? And if what you're seeing in their preseason screen doesn't make sense, then that to me is more of a red flag. And then the second thing, the big thing is anyone gets pain doing a movement screen. That's like a big, big thing because that means there's an issue there already. Not there's going to be an issue. There is an issue there. Now, some players, yeah, as they get older and stuff, we're going to have all sorts of issues going on. But we, if you have a player that's getting pain flagging up and you didn't know about that before, then we need to be addressing those guys before we even worry about trying to put something else in to prevent something else happening. So stuff like that, you can get a lot of valuable information in two hours. And that's kind of the way I look at it now as opposed to going through this nice big Excel spreadsheet of you know all my fancy kind of algorithms and stuff. And I've just gone away from that a little bit and thought, right, the reality is I don't want to spend you know three, four days like solid going through all this information. I want quick information that's going to give me good information objectively in-season and pre-season that I can use in my physio um, reassessments. I want some good information that I can get good data so that I have an idea of what my movement prep needs to be. And also, I need to rule out any big um, red herrings or any issues with pain and also anyone that I'm seeing something, how they move, that doesn't make sense to me. So the four of those would be my kind of big thing that, that I'd look at, really. Mm-hmm. Cool. And in terms of, so you spent most of your time at rugby, like in terms of the sport there, well, I suppose as as so I suppose maybe I'm thinking more so when they're playing their sport, so maybe not so much the preseason. As you said, the screen's gonna you're really using that screen to kind of red flag anything that they're gonna do in their preseason, which usually isn't their sport. So, but if it was another sport, because just going off Joyce's book, like he's basically saying that like you can have this generic screen that kind of just looks at basic generic moves, but then when you're kind of you kind of maybe then want to do the needs analysis for the sport. Like, with the rugby guys there, did you just have these kind of, like, fundamental things you're like, right, I know that for this sport you're going to need more of this and this and this. Um, or even, even say, even for the preseason one, was it just a generic sort of, right, I know in, in your preseason you're going to be doing a lot of deadlifting or a lot of running. Like, was it just, was it then generic enough and that I want to make sure all these players just have these basic sort of capacities or competencies in place? Was, was that the case? And if that is the case, would that change then with regards to if you knew what they were doing preseason training and with also a different sport? Yeah, like I don't want to be disrespectful and like all all that stuff. It sounds good on paper, but the reality is, is you you have the feel for for what you need yeah. your your athletes to do. And I suppose uh, that comes this, this, this is why I asked. This is why I asked. I want an honest yeah. answer. I don't want to sort of well in the ideal scenario like this. Yeah. The uh, one the one thing I really liked about you because the first time I ever started to completely cross you. That's very uh, ignorant, right. ignorant on my part. But I just want to say this as well because the first time I ever heard anything proper for yourself was a webinar with Anthony Renna. Like years ago. You don't remember when he used to have strength coach webinars, he did a savage one. And you were just basically like, listen, 
when you get into the trenches, like, you know, paraphrasing, but you were just like saying, you will not be prepared for what you're going to see in rugby. Like, you were talking about like the weird shit injuries you were seeing, and you're like, all this yeah, stuff yeah. is beautiful. And it's like, that shit just doesn't work when it's like in the trenches. So, like, I want to hear, like, listen, yeah, someone might have written that in a chapter, but this is my experience from actually in the trenches that I tried to, I have literally tried to apply some of that stuff, and it just didn't work. Because you hear that too from coaches who are like, oh, I saw this in a book or in research. Try to apply that with my athletes, and uh, no way did that work. Like you know, so, yeah. so so like I want you to give us as, as yeah, a. Like, I, will, I will do, and like the realities of this is, if like if you're using objective markers, what you're going to see is you're going to see a change straight away, probably if you're lucky, and then with an intervention. But when they come in the next day, they're going to be the exact same again. So so like my approach preseason is that if I break even preseason, and my players look the exact same as they do on the first day of preseason, I am happy mm. because we know that the biggest predictor of injury is previous injuries. So if I pick up pre- if I pick up injuries in preseason, that's not good for me in season. So if I can get through preseason without an injury, especially a soft tissue injury, then I am good. So for me, like my focus in preseason is I want my players to break even, and if I can get a little bit more mobility, you know, after going through six weeks of preseason, I'm very very happy. So like my movement prep. Um, like design in preseason, I know straight away. I don't even need analysis to tell me. I know that their diaphragms are going to be as tight as fuck. Their pelvic floors are going to be locked up. They're going to go into extension when they get tired. When they're trying to deadlift, they're going to lock into extension, which is going to tighten the diaphragm and pelvic floor even more. This just happens. This is our body's way yeah. of getting stability. So, like, I don't need a big needs analysis to figure that out. Like for me, I'll just go right. I need to keep that diaphragm moving and then the SNC are going to fuck it up again and then I'm going to come back in in the morning, I'm going to get moving and the SNC are going to do what they need to do. And that's the reality of pre-season. Like, literally, you do not have to complicate it anymore. Now, that's why I rip Ollie, the, the rehab specialist with his Excel spreadsheets. I hammer him over and I'm like, mate, just keep it simple and we'll be absolutely fine. We don't need, and it's when you get fancy and you try to do all this and this and this that's when you lose sight of the athlete in front of you. Now, we need to react. That's where, sorry, then the pre-training markers are very, very useful. So, like, my pre-training markers might be four tests that would also be pre-season, mm-hmm. screening tests. And the, the day-to-day variation of your movement prep then will be based on what you're seeing pre-training markers. So, like, you're, I do a toe-touch test. So, like, if they're down in their toe-touch test, I don't think, oh, shit, their hammies are tight. I think, okay, their diaphragm isn't lengthening. Yeah. So that, to me, then goes, okay, I'm going to spend a bit more time trying to get these to restore their length now in my movement prep session. Today, I might need to do two, three more sets of that, then do this, this, and this. Whereas when I'm in season, I'm looking more, then a lot more about load and explode stuff. So I'm giving them that. I'm keeping the variability in movement that I'm trying to get all that stuff. So my, my in-season movement prep is completely different to my pre-season. And my pre-season movement prep is literally keep the diaphragm and pelvic floor moving, keep that movement variability as much as we can. And if I break even at the end of the six weeks with no soft tissue injuries, I'm I'm very very happy because then you're in a good position going into into in season. If you've picked up a few calves and a few hammies, that's going to be nasty in season for me then because you, as we know from the research, once you've had that injury and how the body interacts with pain we're probably going to see that player with a couple more injuries that year then. Yeah. You know, so just, now, if we do a good job, maybe we won't, but it just makes it a little bit harder then to um, 
to have a good season. So that's the way I look at it. Pre-season, just break even. In-season, then when the load is down, the sessions are shorter, then you can get a little bit more. But the one thing, Robbie, I would say as well is, like, my, how I, like, in the essentials of injury prevention, like, everything complements everything. So my massage therapist is working with the pre-season results as well. So your pre-season screening, like, there's, like, when they're going for a massage, there's a definite structure to it. The player isn't dictating what they're getting done. So that player, if we find he's got pain on his screening, they've got a clear soft treatment plan to get done as well. So the massage that they're getting in, in pre-season is very structured as well, ideally. Or not even not structured, but we're just going to the main things. Like we're keeping the ribcage moving, we're getting the quads done, instead of just doing your low back and your hamstrings. You know, So there's a little bit of meta behind everything that we're doing. So it's quite meticulous, but it's very common sense. So we're not just hoping for the best. There's a lot of like why we have very good injury prevention rates for three years in a row is because of all the little things, but they all add up. So it's just getting that continuum from the first day of pre-season right through in-season. So it's not a case of I'm doing a really, really good pre-season screen, but the SNC are completely doing something different that we're not talking and we're not um, kind of complementing each other. Because my movement stuff should complement what they're going to do in the gym, what they're going to do on the field. Because if I'm doing my Toroban stuff and I'm doing my rotator cuff stuff, and they're not prepared to move in, in the field, then, you know, I'm pissing against the wind, really. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Just wrapping up here on one or two other things. Um, one thing I asked David Joyce, and, and I really want to get your thoughts on it too, and this is another thing that came from Tommy as well, he, he's big on this, is the language you use with uh, players when you're rehabbing them. So, like, in terms of, like, kind of an, uh, an example would be if someone's coming back from an ACL and or they've had some sort of injury to one um one leg and then you say try it on your bad leg there so, yeah, yeah yeah you know just that's that's an example like in terms of language to, to at least when you're re- rehabilitating well, what are your thoughts there and what are some maybe some strategies you put in or, or like just when you hear that like language towards players like what what comes to your mind like and what would you advise yeah some of the conversations you have with players when you're rehabbing them is is anything but an acl to be fair oh yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah. You're, you're shooting the breeze but um you're, you're getting all the gossip from what's happening in um, in the dressing room, but um, the I think for that it's everybody does it. I do it by accident sometimes. You, you just say it instinctively. Um, I don't. I think the players say it as well a little bit. I'm not sure. I worry too much about it if I'm being honest with you. I think I kind of my intention really is um, is just to get a move well. So again, like those external cues, I'll be trying to cue them with that. I think if I slip the tongue and I say to your bad leg, I might correct myself and we'd make a joke out of it and I have done in the past and, and we'd kind of move on. But I wouldn't be, I wouldn't lose sleep over there, put it that way. Mm. So I think if they, subconsciously, I think, like you know in your rehab program, well, like when they have confidence and you know when they're shitting themselves and that like to me again dictates when we progress the athlete. But like if they like you know yourself before you send that athlete back, he should have like that thoughtless, fearless movement. Like Louis Gifford talks about that, and like if he has thoughtless, fearless movement, then I'm not worried about you know a slip of the tongue here. So because I think there's a lot of stuff that you can do to give the athlete confidence. So because at the end of the day, words are words. You know what I mean? They they can be very powerful, but it's all about the the perception as well. So I think you know. I know where you're going with it, but I, I'll be honest, I don't really lose too much sleep of it. I try not to say you're bad, like, but if I do say it once in a while, 
I, I might try to correct myself and make a joke out of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it kind of goes back to what, what I was saying earlier on about, like, people sort of associating a, a disability with their identity then, you know, so they kind of hang on to it. You know, it's kind of like yeah. it just becomes part of their identity. And then when it becomes part of the identity, they may consciously say, oh, I want I want to get rid of this. But subconsciously, they're like, no, I feel safe with this identity. Like, you see it yeah. a lot with, with mental illness or depression. I'm not saying that all, and I'm not, definitely nowhere near an expert in this, but... There, there has been, you know, cases of where, like, you have people with depression and they they say they want help, but they don't want help. You know what I mean? They, they kind of, they like, it's like, again, Paul checks in, when you, when you find your purpose, you don't need a crisis. But to them, being depressed is who they are. So they're like, if I lose the identity, well, then who am I? And I trying to get across, well, this actually isn't you. This is just, yeah. this, this is just a mask. Or it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Know, it's, that, that's massive because, like, their lives have changed so much when they have a long-term injury because yeah. their life is just is gone pretty much according to, to what they're used to really but that's where the, the GPS comes very very useful cool. and that's why like I'm really like um, um, what's the word I'm looking for I'm really um, like pushing the Giants to be using this because I'm still doing a bit of consultancy with them and like with the rehab programs that they're doing at the moment is being crystal clear with the athlete what he wants so once he knows what he wants to get back to then you the GPS is set to that and, and we, we have the plan then in place to get him to that. Mm-hmm. So I think if we can set that early, it kind of stops a lot of that kind of stuff setting in, really. Because a lot of athletes, when they have an injury, you go, yeah, you've got an ACL injury, and it's going to be six months. And they're like, okay, fair enough. And then they'll come in day to day, and you know they just slowly start losing energy. Whereas if you have a crystal clear plan, and where they're going, what they need to do, when you and you come up with this together, then they've got that clear map in their head of where they're at really and where they need to go. So it, again, it goes to that fairly unknown. They don't like fucking hell. It's four months here, and he reckons I'm going to be back running in a month. He's fucking kidding himself. And then they start to doubt themselves. Whereas if you go, okay, I know now I'm here. I'm hopping. I know I need to do a little bit more of this, and then I'm going to be running. Okay, so I know that there's two or three more steps I need to do in the next two three weeks. So then they can kind of rationalise. Okay. I've still got a few more things to do before I run. So it kind of just changes their, their perception of it really rather than not knowing what's happening in the next month and then going, shit, I'm going to have to run in a month's time. So it stops doubting because they know you've got a plan in place and they've bought into that plan. Mm-hmm. So I think if you put that stuff in place, it kind of stops a lot of that that kind of feeling really. Cool. Last two here. Uh, you okay for time, man? Yeah? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, just... Well, you kind of just touched on it there now. It's kind of it, it, this is kind of flowed nicely because it's like kind of questions kind of feed into or answers feed into my next questions. But just in terms there, you were saying like, oh, like you know, he thinks it's been four months and he'll say back around the month. One sort of thing I really want to get your thoughts on too is this idea of like you know, you know, I suppose it's probably not as prevalent as it used to be. But lads, be like, well, how how long did he say? How long did he say? Oh, six weeks. And he used to get these time frames. Whereas yeah. I think nowadays it's more like, well, he says when I get to this point, like I have yeah. to get here first and then now to stage two and stage three. So can you maybe discuss on that in terms of, you know, the way like most people say, oh, this injury is about six months, this injury is about that. And then really you can't really give a time scale for because everyone's different. It's more so I, I see more more so people are saying like, listen, this is how we're going to do it. We, we want to progress to stage one. When we get to stage one, then it's to stage two and then stage two to stage three, stage four, then it's usually when you're back or whatever, fully or stage five. Like, how do you go about that in terms of depending, obviously, on the injury? But do you have it more, like, instead of having a time base, it's more results-orientated base, if you know what I mean? Um, yeah, again, that, that's what I'm going to go through in this course. It, it's literally a step-by-step process, but the athlete comes up with the steps for you. 
and then you know what you need to do, but they, you need to know what they need to do, that they're fair doing, because what they're going to tell you they need to do is what they're actually fearful of doing. You know what I mean? So they're going to say, okay, I want to do this, this, and this. So I, I like giving a time frame, if I'm being honest. I'll say this is usually what it is, and then I'm working my balls off to beat that time. Because I want to be incentivized as well to, to get them back before that. So I've no problem putting a time frame on something. Um, but I'm crystal clear with with the process that the athlete needs to go through to that. And then but what I would say is if you you the nice thing about the step-by-step process is if they're not hitting the next steps quite quickly, you know that they're probably a little bit behind. So you can almost address that quite quickly with them. Mm. So or you know, okay, well look. He's flaring up here a little bit after doing this, this, and this. This is a normal. Maybe he's got a synovitis in there that we want to double check. So if they don't progress quickly, then you there's always a reason. So we can figure out then, okay, does he have a synovitis? Does he need a steroid injection to settle that down? You know, are we going to try go on for another four weeks here and then he's going to be still sore and achy and then we get it done then? So that kind of mapping it out like that kind of goes, right, why isn't he progressing here? Because physiologically, the tissue is healing nicely. So there's something else. Either I'm missing something, or there's an inflammatory reaction somewhere, or he's got an infection, or something. You know what I mean? So it should all make sense, really. There's no, everybody is different to a point, but if we address their concerns and, you know, they're not shitting themselves and not worried, provided that, that psychological aspect, then there's no reason why they shouldn't be getting back in four months. So it's my job to fuck it up then. You know what I mean? So that's basically what you want to do is you just want to get that crystal clear and you have the confidence to go, right, I need them to do this, this, and this for me, specific to him. And one thing I would say that I'm going to cover in the course is, like, with an ACL, 80% of my rehab is looking at the previous injuries. Like, it's giving him the confidence with all those injuries. And then 20% of it will be the ACL. Does that make sense? So my focus is on the person and actually getting them to desensitize a lot of the movements that they've had of previous injuries because you've got so much time with them anyways. You kind of want to focus on them because the tissue heals itself. The ACL, the grafts and stuff, they're healing. You know, as I said, it's up to you then to get movement variability, get load, and a lot like the strength and stuff, a lot of it's timing, like Bosch will talk about that. You know what I mean? It's getting the tissues to contract at the right time. So... Like that stuff again, the confidence is massive for the for the athlete. And once they have that tallest, fairest movement at each stage, then we can, we know we're happy to progress them. Whereas if he's shitting himself a little bit still, or there's still a little bit of hesitancy, then I'm not progressing the athlete till we get that. So I go, okay, what do I need to do now to get him to the next level? So then it just becomes very focused on the athlete and their that person, as opposed to okay, you know, and, and like you know, I've got that ACL video of Danny McGuire and. You know, that's not what I do with every ACL because it'll be very different and the person's very different as well and some people will go very quickly and crack on. Others are like, you know, they're very sensitive and every little bit of their body, they're telling me about what they feel. So, you know, everyone's different. But I think if you have that generic blueprint and you know, okay, there's no reason why you shouldn't get back in four months and if he's not back where he should be here, then there's a reason for that. And either I'm not doing my job, he's not doing his job or there's something in the joint that we need to... To, to get out and that's usually the nice thing about that is you'll find that quite quickly so you won't let them drag on and then you know six months later you're, you're bringing them back to the consultant and you're going oh fuck that ACL graft has failed or, or something like that you know so 
it um it's kind of a food not a foolproof way because there is no foolproof but it's a nice way to kind of cover your back yeah is if it's not if he's not where he is then just say why you know and it should make sense and if it's not making sense then either he's doing something away from the club that's fucking up your results mm. or you know um then there's something in the joint because if you've got the experience and the confidence in your process and you know you're doing the best of your ability then you know you can you can kind of start to ask questions then Brilliant stuff, great stuff. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I answered because I really want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, just one last sort of, uh, well, just for today anyway, I'm definitely going to get you back on again because you provoked a lot of good thought process here in terms of my own uh, just uh, thoughts and questions. But uh, just interesting to ask, because uh, your background is rugby, with concussions... Have you seen anything with concussions and people getting or people being more susceptible to injuries in terms of any injury but soft tissue? Because I think it was Derek Hansen or someone saying that like there was there. Now I don't quote me on this, but I, I'm nearly sure that I heard, and I don't know if it was Derek Hansen on my podcast, but this idea that like people who had concussions seem to be more susceptible than to like hamstring injuries or just soft tissue injuries later on in the road whether it was something to do then with the coordination of running and something happened with the brain injury, the concussion. Have you read anything, seen anything anecdotally with your work with in rugby? Have you seen any trends there or anything with concussions and then sort of a future injury? Or is concussions anything that you would have red flagged because you're like, mm, that might be something to look at, you know, in terms of trying to reduce injury to this player in the future? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I like my approach, you know, you're probably sick of hearing it, I'll step back and I'll go, okay, what happens as a result of concussion? Mm. We can't do anything about the concussion now. We can, what, what I can influence from day one, day two is the reaction. So suboccipitals presumably are going to go in protective tension. Yeah. Um, C1, C0 might lose a little bit. We know the suboccipitals are going to have a relationship with the eyes. So again, we know the eyes may feel a little bit um, you know, distorted or whatever kind of division may go a little bit. So... The straight away suboccipitals, we can reduce the protective tone on them pretty quickly. Um, you can get them to go through full range of movement through the eyes, which not a lot of us do anyways. Um, and then on the back of that, you know, you're, you're taking care of a lot of the reactions. Whereas I think if the if the suboccipitals and the eyes have protective tone there, I presume, based on how the body works, we're going to lose variability of eye movement. The timing, the processing is going to be that split second um off and then obviously as your foot's hitting the floor you know then potentially you could reason that with, with the hamstrings now that's a massive massive statement there yeah. i'm not like i've got absolutely no proof of that but that's that's why i look at the body so i'd step back and go okay so like with an injury i'd go okay how is this concussion reacting to that injury so how could that concussion potentially influence the injury you know so that's how i would look at it really um oh. so again i just like with concussions ideally if i again depending on times and stuff we would try to do a lot of um, stuff to restore eye range movement and some obstacles. I'd be definitely looking at um, in in terms of that really, just to take away that protective tone. Because again, that's all just reacting. You know, it's a reactive strategy of the system that we know happens. So if we can try undo some of the reactions, then you know, I, I think that's the best we can do as therapists without making big bold claims about what we're doing and, and how we're changing things. Yeah, yeah. And is there any? Just finishing off that concussion one, because I know in the book, I think it's Why Is My Brain Working by Dr. Thies Karazi, and, like, and again, that's more skewed towards sort of functional medicine rather than, say, sports performance, but he did touch on concussions, and he said there was definitely nutritional and bio, 
um, biotechnical sort of substances you can take to help with the inflammation in terms of injury. Have you seen anything with that stuff like her? Um, no, again, I, I'll be honest, I just let that take care of itself and, and okay. I, I do everything I can do in terms of hands-on work, um, but we, we haven't really used anything, um, to be yeah, honest I, with you. I just wondering, yeah. That's yeah, cool. I think like the, the, the sort of simple stuff's very, very useful. Right. Back, um, yeah. Just decreasing the tone there. I think that worked, that works really, really well from our experience. Um, and again, it, it, a lot of it's just managing them really so that they're not fucking on their iPhones and stuff like that, stimulating them and, you know, just kind of the, do the basics very, very well for me. Like, I'll always look yeah. at it that way, really. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And then finally, just before uh, before we wrap up, um, and obviously I want you to, to tell the listeners more time about the Pro Sport Academy, maybe just detail exactly, you know, get the outline again of the 12 months and obviously the, you have a very reasonable payment plan in terms of installments which is great particularly if you're a student too uh, but before we get on to that is there anything in sort of the rehabilitation field or sports science field or general physical preparation field that like you're very excited about like sort of any of the newer technologies is there anything big on the horizon or something that you think is going to be big um or is is it just anything that like you're researching right now that isn't sort of maybe as well known thinking this will probably be the next sort of generation in terms of where the field's going forward whether that's rehabilitation or physical preparation or sports science etc so uh, like is there anything there that you're looking into or um, i'm using um first speed at the moment you know the heart rate variability monitors yeah yeah, yeah. so i'm using them i bought them uh, about six units and to be honest I've used them with a few persistent pain patients so far but that's something that I'm looking to, to do a lot more of so rather than me saying okay your system's in fight or flight and we need to do your rehab exercises is, is actually tracking them for seven days and finding out where I need to do my breathing interventions or, or stuff at, at a point in the day so we don't be either react to the stressors or we stop the stressors you know, um, becoming massive really for the patient. So that's something I'm looking into a lot now at the moment. Um, I'm using them with some persistent pain patients and I want to, um, but I haven't taken it to the level really yet to where I'd be happy to, to kind of, sh- I'm, sh- I'm seeing a lot of preliminary results that kind of fit my bias, I suppose, where I'm seeing what I expected to see um, in terms of like, and, and one of the big things is alcohol really and how it affects your sleep um, is massive, more, more so when I've been using it myself. Um, but but just stuff like that really, and, and looking at their sleep patterns. So a lot of people are getting the eight nine hours sleep, but it's not. Their system isn't in rest and digest. It's in fight or flight really, and you know just couldn't seeing the reaction of my interventions really on on those stuff. You know it, it's been been quite interesting. Brilliant, no brilliant. That's great stuff, Dave. That's absolutely savage. And then again, just before you wrap up here. I like to ask everyone this: uh, What is your top advice to everyone listening? So, and this can now delve into any field. Now, your life advice. I know yourself personally. You know, you, you have you've you've two kids. You have a partner. So obviously, this can delve into more lifestyle stuff. Like, what would your your top advice be? Like, uh, I know Danny Lennon. I don't know if this is Danny's podcast, Sigma Nutrition. He always asks, like, you know, what would be your top advice to help improve people's lives that they can do every day? And nearly everyone answers gratitude, which is obviously is a great thing to sit back yeah. and have gratitude. But like anything, uh, um, so what would your top advice be? And then give me one top resource, be that a book or a course or whatever it is, a, a fucking a weekend course, a spiritual getaway that you did one time or whatever. It could be anything at all. So you can dwell on the ending here or it could be just still related to your own uh, expertise. Um, 
I think one thing I think at the moment that's going to help a lot of people is 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 be more observant of your emotions while you're on social media. Um, oh, that's a nice and, one, yeah, good. Yeah, because I think I like especially we got hammered last two, two, three. No, sorry, last week, but when that article came out, is people's emotions from reading social media put you in a bad mood, which then affects the rest of your evening just from looking at something and the emotions you get when you read a status or someone doesn't like you put a status up and someone doesn't like your your post or something like that and you're like you know all, all the kind of reactions we're getting emotionally from social media i think um i think we need to be careful with that and you know i think it's it's affecting us a lot more than we think so just be observant of your own emotions and like just before you're about to blast a comment out to somebody we get a little bit now and again every some knob comes on and tries to have a go at us on the Facebook page and stuff like that. But, you know, and then actually when you talk to the person or when someone knows that you're actually responding, like some people were calling us Muppets because we were saying about the pain sign and stuff. And then the minute I put on, <laughs> I actually addressed everyone's concerns. No one started putting up about me being a Muppet anymore because they knew I was actually watching it. You know what I mean? So, or they knew I was actually looking at the board. So people like, I call it Facebook rage or Twitter rage these days. Like just, just watch your emotions and just observe them for the next week on the back of that. And I think it's hilarious. I said I've been off Twitter now pretty much. Yeah. I just, I just think like, uh, I didn't like what was happening to me on the back of it. Yeah, I mean, a good question that I suppose to ask yourself there is why is this bothering me so much too, you know? Yeah, so why exactly. are you getting so emotional? Exactly. Because uh, th- th- this is a huge thing that like I've sort of, uh, I'd educate my students on because it's just been part of my own personal development. Uh, there's a great book called The Four Agreements, and one, one of the agreements is don't take anything personally. And in that book, he actually says to be offended is one of the highest forms of selfishness because you think everything's about you. And he's like, when it, when when anyone so calls attack attacks you, it's got nothing to do with you. It's purely got to do with their own insecurities that they're just outputting onto you. You just happen to be the external source that, that got that attack, but it has nothing to do with you whatsoever. So I also found that very good. And then also Viktor Frankl. Uh, was a, psychi- a psychiatrist, who, a Jewish psychiatrist who was in the Nazi uh, concentration camps, and he kept telling everyone that we have free will and we have we have freedom of choice, and everyone was like confused by this because they're like, how can you say that? You were in a fucking Nazi concentration camp, and he goes, but you don't understand. The Nazis could never control my mindset. I could always control my mindset and perception of the environment at any time and at any moment. I'm always in control of that moment to moment. So he had this famous diagram where it was a stimulus on one side. And your response on the other side and in between is your freedom to choose. And he always put that out there. So I'd always kind of express that to, to students. But you're so right, though. I mean, like, uh, that's why, like, again, I, I say this and I know some people cringe. Like, I'm big on unconditional love for people. And then people think I'm religious. I'm not a religious person. I'm just I'm just a human being on earth who just tries to be sound. That's pretty, if you want to call that my religion, that's my religion. But, like, I mean, if you don't like the, the term unconditional love, it just means unconditional acceptance that, listen, everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. And then once you know that, all you can ever have then is empathy and compassion for everyone. And that doesn't mean that you have to like everyone. It just means that you need to understand that everyone is the way they are for a reason. So, Because then people think that, oh, you like everyone. It's like, then I'm aloof. Oh, everyone's fine. Everyone's grand. It's not. Like, if someone is an asshole, it's like they're, like they're an asshole. But I know they are an asshole for a reason. Like I can have yeah. empathy and compassion towards that. So that that is that is good advice though for for anyone listening. That yeah, definitely because people can. I mean, again, like just because reason I brought it up is you're like you could let that ruin your day, and then they're the key words. You could let it ruin your day, but why would you let it ruin your day? Like Eleanor Roosevelt also said one time, you can only let yourself be offended. You know what I mean? So. 
yeah. But that's very good, Dave. And then in terms of a, a resource, uh, what would your top resource be to anyone listening? And it can be to do with anything now. It doesn't have to be just with rehab or, or yeah. sport performance. Yeah, like um, any kind of, to be honest, any, like I like the headspace stuff now at the moment, the mm, mindfulness. Yeah. I, think, I think it's hard to get into, but I think it's very, very good. Um, I think it'll, it'll make a big difference in a lot of people's lives is, is giving it a go and just seeing the changes that um, that happen on the back of just doing a little bit, just spending 10 minutes of your day, even just focusing on your breath, tongue on the roof of your mouth, lips together, teeth apart, and just breathe mm-hmm. for 10 minutes. And your mind will wander a little bit, but keep your, your mind on your breath for 10 minutes, set an arm, and you will see how hard that is. It's ridiculous how, how your mind just wants to wander. But doing that for 10 minutes... And and you'll just see a massive difference straight away. You know, even start at five minutes. It'll just make a big, big difference. Um, so anything like that, you know, I think it's very, very good. And I got a lot out of it. And um, it certainly helped me as well. Class, class. Very last thing. You're going to dinner. You've got five people to invite. Who is it? Jeez, yeah. <laughs> um, dead, dead, dead or alive now? Could be anyone. You know, um... I don't know, I'd probably say I'll fucking... I've just spent the day with Bosch, so I won't say him. Um, How was that? Was that good, Dave? Was it? Yeah, yeah, it was good. Really good. It was, it was interesting. Um, was it just you and him, or was that a group thing? No, it was just me and him, yeah. So I flew over to Holland um, to just to spend the day with him, basically, um, and just basically just showed him everything I'm doing. It goes, right, come at me, and just fucking... Annihilate it. Put holes in it, basically, for me. So it was good. I got, I got a lot out of it, actually. Cool. Yeah, you, you kind of understand a little bit more when you, st- when you come back. Yeah. Um, but no, that was good. Um, yeah, my mind's gone blank here. I think uh, Rachel McAdams is definitely coming. Okay. Um, I, I, I could definitely see that. Yeah, I like her. I have to fight my missus, no? You, you can if you want. You don't have oh, to. Oh, bother. She won't listen to this. Um, <laughs> I'd probably go... I go Louis Gifford. He's a physio. He's died unfortunately last year. Cool. His books aches and pains are unreal. I'd love to talk to him. Um, yeah, uh, Michael Jordan. Cool. Um, three, two more. Um, have to be another woman, wouldn't it? Carl uh, Vorderman, guilty pleasure. <laughs> um, and. Um, or a sports person maybe um maybe tony robbins that'd be interesting one well that, that's a that's a very diverse table so there's rachel mcadams tony robbins michael jordan uh the was it tony was it tony tony robbins carl vorderman and what, what was the physio gifford was it was oh, that, louis gifford yeah louis, louis gifford yeah that's that's a yeah interesting table all right okay dave and then finally wrapping up the pro sport academy so Let's fill us in on everything in this. So it's twelve month mentorship, delivered mainly through online. Is is there any is there any time that the students have to fly over and meet you on that or? Yeah, I'm looking at that. We we had a, a small like three hour class because I, I hosted a guy um at the weekend like a diaphragms course and we had three hours on a Friday night. There was six of us and I found that really useful as I had to show them a lot of stuff and clear up a lot of stuff. Um, but for the majority, we can get through it on webinars and and stuff like that and, and Skype. So it's not a major issue. Um, so we maybe, maybe just give us the outline to the 12 months like how does it like yeah what? so like month one like I'm redoing it now at the moment so month one there's going to be like six weekly lectures which is six weeks I know it's not a month 
um, kind of going through the core content. So that'll give you like the overview of my my step by step system, and then from then it's just a case of understanding. Um, like so, then we'll go through the hip, uh, shoulder, ankle, knee. I think lumbar spine, cervical, thoracic, and then we'll have a strength conditioning month. Mm. Elbow, so uh, uh, whatever wrist, and then TMJ to finish. Uh, but we'll within that there's the subjective assessment, objective assessment, treatment, and rehab each week, like one one a week. Right. So we'll have that continuing, but it's more focusing on that joint, the tissues around that joint as they relate to the body throughout the, the twelve months really. So I've got a pathway that the, the students need to get to, or that I'd like them to get to. So within that, then we kind of break it down every every week to help them. So usually I deliver about one bit of content a week, and then the like that may be subjective, that may be the objectives, the treatments, or the the rehab, and then they basically for that joint, and then they'll just work their way through that with me. Uh, we've got a Facebook page where we ask any questions. Obviously, I'm there as a mentor, so if you like, if they have any tricky patients, they'll ask me my advice. I'll say this is what I would do. I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. Um, and then I get uh, guest lectures on as well, um, usually once a month, where they'll come on and present kind of their area of expertise and research. Um, and usually they'll be kind of people that I would have um, been influenced a lot by as well, so they can kind of hear it from the horse's mouth, just in case I'm saying anything that may be incorrect. Um, and, and that's it really and as I said I'm just working out making it simple because my, my main goal is to make people's lives easier to get them to the next level whether they want to be in sport or want to be successful private practice um, and just give them the confidence to, to know that actually what they're doing is, is helping people and to make sure that the results stick as well that it's not just going to be a quick change and the pain comes back and they're, they're my main goals really I'm just keeping it really simple I'm enjoying what I'm doing I've got great students in the class you know, and as I said, I want to keep it that way. There's no egos, and if anyone thinks that they can change my system to make it better again, I'm absolutely fine with that as well because I want people to go, right, what about doing it this way? A lot of times I go, shit, I didn't even think of that. You know, and it's brilliant. And is it, is it only open to sign-ups at certain times of year? Like, is it like every September, January? Is it kind of like- Yeah, so there's like, um, there, there's a January class and a June class. Okay. You know, unless you've got a specific need, then somebody could potentially get in contact with me. You know, that that's originally wants to, to come on. But I like to do it that way so that we can kind of come through together. Everyone's yeah, yeah. on the same page. Otherwise, it just gets a little bit confusing. Um, do you cap off numbers on it, Dave? Like, is it 10? Yeah, 10? I, I just keep it about 25. Um, cool. The last three classes have been 25. So as I get, I might, I might be able to take on a couple more once I have the content because I'm, I'm always changing stuff and tweaking stuff. So I'm just, I'm very mindful of people getting um, the value for it, really, that I can teach it properly. So I don't want the big, big class. Um, as I said, I, I like that personal relationship with the students as well. That's very important to me. Sweet. I'm and, trying to get better at that. And then just finally, in terms then of, um, as I said, the payment plans, like you can obviously pay up all the front, but you also offer installments too, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So we do... Um, Pretty much, I'm bringing it back down. You can pay over 12 months, um, or you can pay in one go, or you can pay three payments or six payments, whatever, whatever really. We're pretty, pretty open about it, really, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. Like, a big thing, it's a lifetime access, although it's 12 months, like structured learning, like a lot of, like Tommy's going through the new course again, so you can go through it as much as you want. You have lifetime access to the content. Um, as I said, it's, it's more about... Um, like it's an investment in yourself it should pay for itself the mentorship and if it's not going to pay for itself don't do it that's my advice to you so 
you know, it should be worth its value to you, you know, whether it's giving you the confidence to increase your prices or, or whatever, you know, get more word of mouth referrals. To, I want the mentorship to pay for itself. I don't want it to be a, a cost to you. It's an investment. It's also, a, it's also a network too. Like you're actually saying there you've done three with 25, that's 75 therapists that you can potentially communicate on a daily basis in the Facebook group. Yeah, I mean, we, I've got, I've had job offers, um, people applying, like asking me, do I have any good physios wow. or, or therapists that, that want jobs in sport? Now, and again, like uh, someone in Australia came to me about looking for a number two physio in pro sports. So, you know, I've put that out to my mentorship people and, you know, Amazing. people I genuinely trust are going to give my, because as far as I'm concerned, they're like, it's my word of mouth almost still. Like when those people say they've done my mentorship, I want them to reflect good on me. So um, it, it's in my best interest as well to make sure that they're they're good at what to do when they get results. It's very important. That's amazing. That's amazing. And just finally wrapping up on that, because um, I have to go myself. I don't keep you any longer. I have to go myself as well. So don't worry, I won't keep you too much longer. But just in terms there as well on the mentorship, um, like, is there deadlines and assignments that need to be done and handed in? Like, are you holding no, people? No, like, to be honest, Robbie, it's, it's not like a master's. It's very, like, what I'm trying to get it to do now is go, right, instead of doing one-hour lectures where I'm presenting all the literature, because I've got them lectures done and recorded, mm-hmm. webinars, I'm trying to do it now where you have a 40-minute webinar, and it's just, like, 40 minutes of content practically applying it. Cool. So I'd rather that, because that's what people need is is that practical realities and that's what i'm trying to get much better at with the mentorship i've got the kind of the webinars done where they want a little bit more information they can watch the one hour version but what i'm focusing on now is giving them the practical content because it's not a master's where where i want people reviewing literature and papers my ultimate goal is that tomorrow morning when you watch something with me today you're going to be a better clinician in the morning as a result of watching that and you can apply it immediately immediately rather than kind of trying to figure out how to how to apply it so that that's kind of my goal with it. Sweet. So listen, I, I'm I'm a fucking whatever. I was gonna say young student, but I I'm a guy now listening to this Savage Robbie Burr podcast as always, and I'm like this David Southern Fellows class. I actually really really interested in this this uh, post sport academy. I think I'm gonna sign up. Do it. Like what what should I do now? So so like go to Robbie's show notes or where, where, where should I go? Like like I'll just go to the pro sport the pro sport academy um, it'll, be in the show, it'll be in the show notes people just let you know. what's that sorry it'll be in the show notes people uh, theprosportacademy.com and then I think it's forward slash therapist slash mentorship mentorship but what I'd say just email me it's dave at prosportphysiotherapy.co.uk and what I'm doing with people now before they come on the mentorship is I'm having a like a 20-30 minute Skype with them because cool. I want to make sure that I'm the right person to help them so I'll go right like what what do you actually why do you want to do the mentorship like where do you want to get that and if i genuinely think i can help you then you're more than welcome on it but if you're not the you know if it's not right for you then i'll tell you that as well because you know that's the last thing i want these people coming on it where they're they're not happy or, or anything like that so if i think you'll get value all of it you know it's not an interview it's just make sure that, that you're happy with it and i'll show you around the, the background of the mentorship so I want to make sure that I meet your expectations. Really, that's the most important thing for me. Is is um is that I can genuinely help you. I meet your expectations, and that's what that kind of um that call is, where we just go right. for half an hour, we'll have a chat. I'll show you in a bit more detail how I treat, and then you know if you, if you think it's for you, then then great. If if not, then there's there's no problem at all. That's class. I mean, that's going that's going far above and beyond, you know, anything that's put out there. Because just wrapping up to the the personal training college I teach at 
it's it's owned co-owned by a guy called Sean McGarry and Jason Kane. But Sean does the same thing. Sean gets people to come in and meet him and talk to him because Sean wants to make sure that that we are the perfect fit for this individual that we live up to their expectations and vice versa. You know, because we want to keep a high standard to the students we bring in. You know, so that's amazing that you're doing that. Dave, yeah. this, this has been absolutely outstanding. Almost, uh, we're on you know, 15 more minutes. We're on two hours. So I might split this up into two parts, but uh, this is great. I'll get this out as soon as I can because I know you're, 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 you're um, keen up for, for another launch here of the Pro Academy. And you have, what's the recent book you have out now? The, the Seven Steps to Clinical Excellence. Cool. So if you go on the prosportacademy.com, you'll be able to download that pretty much free straight away. So Absolutely brilliant. It's, uh, I think it's about 25 pages. It's just some lessons that I've learned over the last eight years about kind of where I'm at now and stuff. We've probably complements this webinar or this podcast nicely, actually. Savage. So, like, I mean, we were just going to come on and have a chat, and, like, this actually grew into a monster episode. It's actually brilliant. Like, this I'm after learning you're actually provoking so much Todd it's been, been brilliant I really appreciate it so just stay online for just another sec while I wrap up so guys if you're anyone who is in the fields of rehabilitation so whatever your profession is you know you're a physio or an osteopath a chiropractor or a chiropractor etc if you're a physical preparation coach you just want to widen your knowledge I mean I think you'd be crazy not to at least consider doing this course with Dave um you know, I'm doing a master's right now, so I don't know if I'd be able to take it on, but I, I'm telling you, he's, I'm not just saying this because you're but like, I like, I'm like, I really want to actually do this now because it just sounds so, so good. Um, So, guys, I mean, I'll be in my show notes days after saying the website a few times, but the link will be there. Um, and go pick up that new free ebook and have a look. And as Dave said, you can even just email him and have a Skype. I mean, what more can you ask for? So, absolutely quality. I think you've been saying not to even just consider it. Um, and I've, I've heard great things from, from people that have done it. Like I said, Tommy Brennan, who I'm good friends with, he had nothing but absolutely outstanding things to say in terms of the return on investment. So, Dave, fair play to you. You're doing the profession a huge, uh, a huge service by putting that out there. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, guys, thanks for listening. If you can share this out, this would be great, not only for, for myself, but obviously for Dave and ProSport Academy. And uh, just keep spreading the word. I'll talk to everyone soon when I have my next guest on. So, for now, take care. Be well, guys, and stay strong. Thank you.